if it's in the Old Testament, I know it's an obscure book. You probably have, uh, there's a good chance you've maybe never studied it. Um, so go ahead and turn there and we'll, we'll just do a couple uh, items of business here and, and then we'll jump into that book. <clears throat> First of all, my name's Jesse, if we haven't met, uh, and uh, glad to have you with us, whether you're online or here. We are taking communion uh, this morning, so if you're at home, go ahead and grab some elements at home that you can join in with us. If you have not received your elements, they're, they're outside right when you came in. Feel free to sneak out and grab some. Uh, we'll do that at the end of the service. Uh, a couple things uh, that I want to just make mention of and announce for you this morning. Um, one of the things that, that we have been doing to, uh, we don't talk about it a whole lot because um, we know that, that those of you that are here are comfortable being here, and those of you who are at home, you're not ready yet. But we have continued to do things in our facilities to make sure that they are clean and, and all of that. We have, a, um, we have this actual special little sprayer that we use in between services that the air, airlines use. It's the same thing they use. We got it early on uh, when the, the virus first kind of took off. We've been doing that. But tomorrow, we're actually installing, uh, found out about this cool little device. It, it almost sounds like, like, like something out of the space age. But basically what it is is it connects to our, um, our furnace, our, our heater, our air that gets pumped in and ionizes the air that comes into the building. And when it ionizes the air, this is pretty incredible, it basically attaches, it's like shooting ozone into the room, and it attaches to all the particles that are in the air, all the viruses that are in the air. When it attaches, it kills them and makes them heavy, and then they fall to the ground. And that allows us to kill, or not kill, but clean up all that dead uh, junk. So here, here's basically uh, what you need to know in regards to that. First of all, if you're at home and you're looking to make sure that the virus is not in the room, um, it won't, we're going to have literally the cleanest air in the planet. So uh, this is the place to be. It would be super safe, and, and it's not expensive, um, and the stuff kills 99-plus percent uh, of the virus, which is pretty cool. And, and all that to be said, it, 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 we say it kills the virus, but the virus hasn't been in our room since November. So um, we're just taking extra precautions, okay? Uh, and then last week, we talked about... Um, uh, so, this is Serving Orphans and Widows. We support Travis uh, down in Mexico, and we're helping him, assisting him. There's a board outside. You can buy some, uh, some, some, some equipment for building, basically a house that's going to bring in orphaned babies. So, uh, one of the things I want to let you guys know that just in the last, like, I'd say close to month and a half or so, uh, our church alone has raised over $40,000 uh, for the baby babies down there. And for Yeah, that's pretty incredible. So, Thank you for your generosity. If you want to continue uh, to give to that above and beyond what you normally give here at the church, uh, there's a board out there, and you can buy particular items, everything from like a box of nails to sheetrock, uh, and there's, you can just check it off. So check that out. Uh, and then in a couple weeks, we're doing a parenting seminar, and so I'm going to have um, John Drollinger come on up, and he's going to share with you uh, briefly about this, because uh, I found out about Mr. Dodson from, from John. So go ahead, bud. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. My name's John, and I'm an elder here at SBC, and really excited about the upcoming parenting seminar in a couple of weeks. Um, we have four kids, ages 6 to 15, boy, girl, girl, boy, and they are an absolute blessing, but also an absolute challenge. And so we're looking forward to spending a weekend with the Dodsons just discussing the blessings and challenges of parenting. So 
Robert and his wife Tracy have five kids, four of which are adopted, and two of which are now married, and one of which has two daughters. So they're grandparents, and they have been an absolute blessing to my wife and I over the years. They're kind of like family. We've kind of learned how to parent in their living room. Um, they, they were spiritually, they led my wife to the Lord and in fact, when I went to propose to my wife, I asked Robert for her hand because she was, he was that much of a father figure to her. And so they came last June and met a ton of the young families here and said, we want to come back. Uh, we want to share what we share. This is what they do at their church and around di- different churches is these parenting seminars. So um, it's Friday night. We'll discuss the foundations of marriage Uh, The Foundations of Parenting, which is a solid marriage. Then Saturday morning, what the Bible says about marriage. And then some specifics on raising boys and raising girls. So if you're single, this is a great opportunity to think ahead about parenting. If you have young children, you should come and learn great principles for raising young kids. If you're parents of teens, come learn how to be parents of teens. And if you're empty nesters, please still come and just learn these principles so that you can pour into the next generation um, using some of the wisdom and insights that they share. So we are really looking forward to this, and if you're interested, please sign up in the back. Cool. Thank you. Uh, A couple things to note on that if you're interested in coming. uh, We need you to sign up at the info booth, so please go out there and put your name down for you or your spouse or if you're single, but we're trying to get a head count. Uh, because we are providing breakfast that morning, and we're providing uh, Full Belly Deli for lunch, which I think is a pretty incredible uh, gift to you. So for $20, you get a sandwich, uh, you get a breakfast, and if you have kids, you get child care for an evening and a full day. You cannot get child care for 20 bucks for a full day. I'm going to tell you that right now. Uh, so it's a killer deal. It's well worth it, uh, but it also provides you for, uh, with some materials uh, and uh, for you as well. And then as we dive into the book of Habakkuk, these are in the bookstore. We have a few more of them left. These are uh, their ESV uh, scripture journals. Basically on one side uh, is the, the word of God. On the other side is a place to journal. We've been offering these every time we jump into a new book. We'll be in Colossians after Habakkuk, uh, which will be pretty fun. And then we'll provide those then. And so hopefully within 20 years or so, you'll have the entire Bible uh, in scripture journal as we study through it, yeah? Okay, would you stand with me as we read from this obscure book in the Old Testament? And, and can I just say thank you for being here at the 830 service after losing an hour of sleep, and it just makes our second service go so much better, parking and all of those things. So uh, and if you're thinking of coming back and you're on the Internet, 830 is a great service to come to. Uh, There's a little bit more room than the 1030. The Oracle, verse 1, chapter 1, Habakkuk. The Oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you'll not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Lord, I pray as we 
Enter into this small book, Lord, a conversation between a, a prophet and you that we would learn, Lord, what it means to speak with you, to talk with you, to have a conversation with you, to be open with you, to be real with you. And so we trust this morning that you would do work in us that only you can do. In Jesus' name, the church said. You may be seated. Um, so the title this morning is Brutal Honesty. We're going to do a little bit of historical work in, a, in just a few moments, um, but I just want to give you an illustration. This this is some difficult stuff that Habakkuk is really going through. And so let me just throw out there this to begin with, because this has been a debate uh, that now I've had for a couple weeks and talking about uh, the book of Habakkuk or, or uh, Habakkuk or however you might want to say it. So that's been the debate, right? Um, how do you say this name? Uh, and and I, in fact, somebody who watches online periodically because they live uh, in, in uh, San Jose uh, actually messaged me and told me that the way I say it is wrong and, and that I don't, you know, he, he was concerned that I might be perceived as, as dumb uh, because of the way that I am saying it or the way that I say it. And so one of the fun things about when you actually study and you dig into, uh, you know, some old stuff is we actually, just so you know, and this is for my friend in San Jose, I hope he's listening right now, um, we don't really know how to pronounce it. That we, we just simply know if anyone says this is how you say it, they're wrong uh, because the name is actually, it's considered an Akkadian name, which is an old Assyrian uh, loan word. And so ba- basically, it's such an old language and such an old name, we really don't know how to say it. So if you want to say Habakkuk, say Habakkuk. You want to say Habak- Habakkuk, uh, you, you can say that too. It doesn't matter. Say it however you want. You might want to throw in as someone's, you know, it's, a, it's Jewish, so Habakkuk. Might be the way to say it. Uh, we we honestly don't we honestly don't know, and we're just being honest. And so I might interchange the name just because, and it's not because I'm dumb. It's because I actually don't know how to say it, and neither do you, right? Okay. So this book is a book of honesty, and and so I want to just share with you uh, some moments of honesty in my own life. As you think about moments of honesty in your life, moments of realness, moments of rawness. Uh, one example I use as a pastor is I remember one of our elders, this was probably six, seven years ago, maybe, maybe even a little longer. He pulled me off to the side, uh, sat me down in my office, and he said, Jesse, uh, I love you. I care for you, um, and, and, and I appreciate your heart for the Lord, but I think that you are, um, I think you're egotistical, and I think you're prideful, and, and I think that, that, that you're not as gentle as you should be, and he just really laid out some things that, if I'm being honest, were completely honest of things that, that I was wrestling through as a man and as a person in that moment. And I humbly received that honest moment. Uh, it was one of those moments that, that I was able to set aside my pride, didn't defend myself, uh, didn't tell him that, that, I, that he was wrong, uh, and just said, okay, thank you for that. And then I asked him this. I said, I said to him, okay, what do I do about it? If that's true, what do I do about it? And he said, I don't know, but I hope you figure it out. And then he left, okay? Um, that was an honest moment. I'll share with you another honest moment, and, and this is going to sound radical, and the reason it is, uh, the reason I am sharing it is in part to let you know some of which I've wrestled through uh, as, as a person, uh, as a Christian in faith, um, but also to, to step into the reality of what we're going to step into in this book here in just a moment. Uh, about five years ago, um, my biological stepfather called me uh, from Portola, and he let me know that he had uh, a conversation with, with his girlfriend at the time 
uh, that they were, they were going to uh, basically, they had a suicide pact. They were going to, they were going to basically knock each other off and that they were done with living and they were over it. And I pleaded with him not to do it. Uh, I was communicating with some authorities, some police officers and stuff. My biological father was a felon and, and, and I, I thought I talked him out of it. Uh, and then a, f- a couple months went by, and his old lady, that's what he called her, she, she passed away with some questionable circumstances, and a few nights later, my biological father shot himself in the back of the head. This is just about five years ago. And, um, and I got a phone call that he had done this. He didn't kill himself. By God's grace, he didn't die. Uh, ended up in renown, um, and uh, man, it just was a difficult, really, really difficult moment. And after he kind of healed, I mean, he had this ginormous uh, hole in the back of his head that for some reason uh, just missed everything that was important and survived the incident. And I remember uh, once I got him out of the hospital to help care for him, walking through Costco uh, in his scrubs and barefoot, trying to find him some clothing and shoes because uh, all of those things were taken from him. And then shortly after that, because he was a felon and he had some other felons out, uh, some other warrants and stuff out for him, uh, he was shortly arrested and ended up spending about five more years in prison. Now, um, I had to go through that as a Christian, uh, as a pastor. In fact, um, on the heels of my stepfather who raised me, he died and passed away, and there was great difficulty after that. And then shortly after that, my biological father tried to kill himself. And all do- during that entire process, I was being... Uh, really looked at as, is Jesse going to be the next senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church? So I was being, going and vetting through this process and going through these hard conversations. Am I supposed to be the lead guy? Does Jesse have the qualifications for it? Or are we sure that we want to have Jesse be the next lead guy of Sierra Bible Church? So it just was a, a compounding effect of just difficulty and hardship, all, all the while saying, okay, Lord, I'm willing to serve you in the church. That's just being honest, right? And, and at times, if you have had those moments in your life, whether it is a, a relationship that has failed, whether it was a breakup, whether it was your children walking away from the Lord or death in the family, or whether it was addiction, or, or if you've been in the group in the past year that has been impacted by depression or suicidal thoughts. And if you've at all had God in the picture, you've probably asked the questions, God, where are you? What are you doing? How come this is happening? We all have a tendency at times of great difficulty to question why God is doing what he's doing. It's basically what this entire book is about. All of the, first of all, this is considered a minor prophet. Uh, it's, it's a group of, of smaller prophetic books that's what it means to be a minor prophet. It doesn't mean that, that what he said was less impactful. It's just a smaller prophetic book as opposed to a major prophet, which would be Isaiah or Jeremiah uh, in those books. All of the other prophets in the Old Testament, God initiates a conversation with the prophet. God steps up to the prophet and says, guess what, Jeremiah? You're going to do something. Guess what? Isaiah, you're going to do something. God initiates. But this is the only prophetic book in all of the Old Testament where the prophet actually initiates the conversation with God. There's a little bit of audacity to what Habakkuk is actually saying or, or doing. He's questioning God's interaction with his people. He approaches God, and then God speaks. This is a, a complete conversation between a prophet and a broken, tumultuous time uh, between, between him and God on behalf of the people. So let's get an idea of 
why this is occurring. Uh, so I'm going to give you a little bit of history lesson um, and, and stick with me. This stuff's interesting to me. Uh, there's a lot kind of that I want to share uh, in regards to this to give you a backdrop of why he's writing this book. So stay with me. You might see me look at my notes a little bit more because I want to make sure that I get my, my history correct as well. Because if you're like me, you probably have not spent an incredible amount of time studying the timeline or history of the Old Testament. I know some pastors, they just spend all their time in the New Testament, um, and, and, and we obviously don't do that for a lot of different reasons, and so we're going we're gonna to throw it back, okay? So how many of you were here during the Exodus uh, sermon series? All right, a few of you. <laughs> that was way less than I thought. Either that or you're, you're too shy to raise your hand. So we went through Exodus, and we, we, we realized that after the fall of mankind in Genesis, then came the, the people becoming in, in bondage to Pharaoh. And, and after a little while, Moses is sent on behalf of God to free the people from Pharaoh. And the people leave and they go into the promised land. And as they've entered into the promised land, they start to become their own people. They start to become their own group of people. And what happens then is the people are looking at all the other nations, right? So remember now, the people of God, the Jewish people, their, their leader, their, their politician, their king, their everything was Yahweh. Like they were, God fought their battles for them. God spoke on behalf of them. God would go before them and, and defeat whole armies. God was in control of everything. He'd lead them by fire at night in a pillar of cloud during the day. They would have shade in the day in the hot sun. They would have heat in the evening all by the presence of God. Like this is a group of people that have no leader but God. And the people start to look around the other nations and they see these other empires. And what do all of these other nations' empires have? They have a king. And so the people literally call out to God and they say, they say to God uh, through the prophet and they say, hey, God, God, God we, we want a king. We want a king. And what's really incredible is if you go to 1 Samuel, you don't have to turn there. I'll just mention it to you. But if you want to see it for yourself, you can. You go to chapter 8. You'll see God are speaking to Samuel. Samuel's speaking to God on behalf of the people. The people are asking for a king. And this is what God says to them from 1 Samuel. Okay, I'll give you a king. I'll give you a human being that will lead you. But this is what you need to know about a king. A king is going to take your sons to fight war for you, and a king is going to have to take some of the best of your fields. In fact, a king's going to take one-tenth of all that you have. Essentially, this is what he said. You want a king? There's going to be a draft. Your people are going to have to fight the war for themselves. There's going to be a draft. And if you get a king, you're going to be taxed. You're going to have taxes. You're going to be like the rest of the world. This is what it's going to take to be run like this nation. And, and then this is what he says. He says, God tells them before, he says, you're going to get a king and you're going to get taxed and your young men are going to have to go to war. Sound familiar? Your young men are going to have to go to war. And then what's going to happen is you're going to eventually cry out in regret for your king. You, this is what you're going to do. You're going to say, I can't believe, I can't believe this is my king. I didn't vote for this guy. I didn't want these taxes. How, why in the world are gas prices the way they are? I didn't want this. And God will say, no, you asked. You asked to be like the other nations. And so now you have a king. And so Samuel sends out 
people everywhere to go find a king. And God's hand lies down upon a particular individual by the name of Saul. And some of you who know the, the story of Saul, you know that Saul, Saul physically is everything you want. Right? This is George Clooney as president. He is tall, he is dark, he is, he is an awesome looking figure. There, there's something great about him. And then you know that Saul becomes a major disappointment. Saul becomes an absolute madman. He goes crazy. And then the prophecy lies down upon another young boy who's out in the field that nobody saw as king, and the prophecy falls that, that eventually Saul is going to be usurped by another king, a better king, and his name's going to be David, right? The shepherd David. So David steps out onto the scene, and he is known as the man after God's own heart. But we also know that David had his own set of issues, yeah? He's an adulterer. He cheats on his wife. He sends a man out to war uh, because he cheated on that man's wife. Got her pregnant. But ultimately, one of the things that makes David a man after God's own heart is he was honest. He was real about his, his sin. He confessed his sin. He repented of his sin. But then David, as soon as he comes on the scene, brings great change. As soon as he's on the scene, as just as quick he, he dies. And then because David was a man of war, he wasn't able to build a temple. But Solomon, who came after David, his son, was able to build a temple for the God, for God, for Yahweh, a place where sacrifices could be made, a place where people could go and ask for forgiveness. This literally brings, brings upon God's people what we would call the golden age of the Jewish people. This is the golden age of his people, a beautiful temple that that the people have been waiting for for a thousand years. But then again, as soon as the golden age arises, as soon as David, after David has died, just as soon as he has died, he dies, then, a, then another king comes, becomes king, and his name is Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam is not accepted by 10 of the tribes of Israel. There's 12 tribes. 10 of those tribes say, we don't want it at Rehoboam, and the other two say they're okay with it, and the tribes split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the two northern kingdom tribes, we don't see a whole lot of them because they quickly get absorbed and defeated and led off to exile. They're quickly overtaken. And then during Rehoboam's reign and onward, these ten southern tribes fall quickly into idolatry. And we see this beautiful temple that was made by Solomon begins to disintegrate other temples begin to come up. And this golden age that once was quickly falls into decadence for other gods. The, the people in the community fall quickly into sin. And then King Amon comes along. He then dies. And King Amon was a big part of the reason all of this is happening. So again, now imagine you've, you've got God's people who were led by God, led by a pillar of fire in the evening and a cloud at night, and God is leading them and speaking with them, the people as they tend to do, they ask for more, they want a human being, they don't want just God, so they get a human being, they get Saul, Saul is broken, then they get David, David does a better job, but he's still broken, then they get Solomon, Solomon builds a temple, there's great prosperity in a golden age, but we also know that Solomon was a broken guy too. 
Right? Solomon is the guy who wrote Ecclesiastes, right? You, you remember what Ecclesiastes is all about? It's all vanity. Life is all smoke. There's nothing to be grabbed to hold on. And then as time passes, we get King Amon, and, and, and all of God's people quickly fall into darkness. And then Amon dies. And Amon gives the throne over to another king by the name of Josiah. Now, this is incredible because do you know how old Josiah was when he became king? He was eight. Eight. Eight! Okay? I have an eight-year-old son. And I cannot imagine what it would be like for an entire nation to be led by Jonah. That's our eight-year-old. I mean, this, this is their, like, Jonah... Lead the people, bro. Okay, it would be chaos. I can tell you, we'd have pizza, and that's it. There'd be no other dinner. There'd only be pizza. And there'd be a lot of wrestling and a lot of screaming, right? I mean, this is incredible that somehow in God's providence, this, this young King Josiah takes over as king over the 10 southern tribes. But then... Eight years after becoming king, Josiah, at 16 years old, has a moment with God. And, and, and Chronicles doesn't tell us exactly what this moment totally is, but, but it does say this is for the eighth year in his reign, so he's 16. While he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to pure Judah and Jerusalem of the high places of Asherim and the carved and the metal images. He broke the idols into pieces. So what's incredible is this eight-year-old boy who basically everyone probably looked at and thought, who is this young kid, ends up taking over a kingdom that is overrun by idols. I mean, imagine you've got a a kingdom that at one point in time had one temple and its central focus was Yahweh. Its central focus was God. And, And then as it falls into decadence, that temple goes into disrepair. And instead what arises are false gods all over the communities. And Josiah has a moment with God and says, it is now time to get rid of all of it. And it literally says he's pushing over the old monuments. He's shattering them. He's breaking them. I don't know how many of you remember the image of the statue of Saddam Hussein being taken down during, what was that, 1998 or whatever it was. This is that kind of image. Down with the false idols. Down with the false leadership. And all the while, guess who's also speaking at this time? Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is calling his people back to God, calling them back. And then Josiah has another moment in his 20s, takes over at eight, changes and becomes Josiah the reformer. And as he enters into his 20s, he starts to fix up the temple again. And the priests are in there, and they're, they're basically they're making the church look good again. They're, they're making it beautiful again. And guess, guess what they find? The Torah, this old, lost, first five books of the Bible. They find it, and Josiah pulls it out. He opens it up, and he starts to weep. He opens up God's word, 
And he sees how God made man and he walks the walk with man and, and he begins to weep because he sees how far his nation has gone from, from the Lord. And he brings more reform. For the first time in who knows how long, he, he makes the people partake in the Passover meal to celebrate the goodness of God. What we're going to partake in this morning in the Passover meal He brings the people back into a relationship with God. He brings the nation together, the ten tribes together, and he reads aloud to them the first five books of the Bible, and the entire nation repents. It's what's called as the Deuteronomic Reform. Say that five times fast. It's a reform of sorts. It's a reformation. God's people are coming back. I mean, think about this for a moment. The, the, the heaviness of this, the, the weightiness of this, this, this is literally, literally every, every like particular part of, of, of the economic, uh, social, stratonomic part of the whole nation. I'm trying to think of the right words. The whole nation, the legal system, the political system, everybody hears God and repents. It, it'd be the, it's literally, to a certain degree, the equivalent of the entire, the entire U.S., just changing everything it does in order to come back to God. We're going to change the way we do the legal system. We're going to change the way that we vote. We're going to change everything because we see God. This is, this is a massive Old Testament revival. Could you just imagine what it would be like? And all the while, right, this is Judah. This is the, the ten tribes. They're, they're kind of small and insignificant. But surrounding them is Assyria. Now, at this time, Assyria was, was kind of the top dog, they, 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 but they were in a slow decline. That's what the prophecy of Nahum before, before Habakkuk prophesied some stuff about Assyria. They're kind of on a decline. Nahum saw that. Then there's the Babylonians. The Babylonians are starting to take place of Assyria. And the Babylonians, to a certain degree, were all going to become like Babylon. Then there was the Chaldeans who were super violent, aggressive, and they were growing, conquering, and enslaving. And at the same time, Egypt is in existence and is in decline. Okay, so now imagine you've got Jeremiah. He's prophesying. He's, come on, come back to God. Josiah has created this beautiful reform. The people of God are coming back. The entire nation is being changed. All the while, there's these very violent, very large, very aggressive, very satanic nations around them. And while Josiah is king... Necho of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt says, sends a letter to Josiah, says, hey, Josiah, I need to come through your territory to go attack, I believe it's the Assyrians. So Necho says, I'm coming through there, and I, I need to do this, and you need to let me. And Josiah says, no, I'm, I'm not going to be a part of it. So Necho shows up anyways, and Necho and, and Judah end up meeting in the valley of Megiddo to battle it out. They're going to fight. Now Josiah, Josiah is the king, and you know what he does? He disguises himself that he can battle the Egyptians. So this great reformer, right, this pillar of Israel's history, He's willing to die for his people. He, he disguises himself. He goes to war. 
And as quickly as Josiah shows up on the scene, as quickly as the reformer shows up on the scene, Josiah dies in battle. And even Jeremiah himself laments the loss of Josiah. Well, this is a sad deal because then what happens is Egypt actually takes, takes Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, and makes him king, and he's basically just a puppet of Egypt, and he begins to start leading the people back into idolatry. But Jehoahaz didn't last very long, about three months. Then Necho puts his other brother in place, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim is actually worse than his brother Jehoahaz. He actually takes a scroll that was given to him by Jeremiah, where Jeremiah said, okay, uh, Jehoiakim, if you're going to lead God's people, this is how you should interact. He takes the scroll and he rips it apart. Jehoiakim is an awful leader. Second Chronicles 36.6 says, against him came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This is after jo- Josiah. This is his second son, Jehoiakim, is leading. And Second Chronicles tells us that while he's leading, Babylon comes and bounds him in chains and takes him to Babylon. He's imprisoned. This is where we pick up in the book of Habakkuk. This is what's happening as Habakkuk writes this. Habakkuk has been a witness. We don't know a whole lot about Habakkuk, but we know that he witnessed a breaking, a reformation of glory back to great loss. They've lost everything. They've lost everything. They're in slavery. God is not leading them. They, they're kingless. And so on the heels of this, this is exactly what Habakkuk writes. He cries out. And he begins to ask God questions. One of the things that, that, that is essential that Habakkuk is basically asking is here is he says, okay, look, if you look around, there's idols everywhere, God. They're everywhere. They just keep popping up. I've told you before, Calvin says our, our hearts are like idol factories. We just keep churning out new things to worship, new things to look to, new things to lean in on. One commentator says it like this, the prophet has continually sought the Lord for relief from the burden of human misery piled up every day in the streets and the cities of Judah and in the halls of justice in the land. He witnessed a society that had been falling apart in terms of its moral fabric from the political leaders to the common people. Everyone has seemed to have plunged themselves into moral madness. Does that sound familiar today? Everyone seems to have forsaken the Lord and his covenant with his people. Everyone seems to be striving for personal pleasure and self-promotion. At every level of the Judahite society, sin is rampant. There is doctrinal and covenantal unfaithfulness. The leaders of the nation have forsaken the law of the Lord and instituted their own false righteousness. I've said this before, I think, to some degree. And I'm thankful for it, and it also breaks my heart. I'm thankful that, that, that right now, th- there has literally been a purge of the church. Like right now, th- th- there is a distinction be- between those who, who refuse to submit to the culture and to the world and its thinking, and those 
who have decided to stand strong and preach the word of God without apology. There's a purging. Like, like, if you, like there, is a, there is a true distinction between those who really wanted to worship Jesus on Sundays and during the work week and those who do not. Right? I mean, it has been really clear to me that many churches have decided at some point years ago, they decided years ago to look more like the world and not so much like God's unique distinct, set-apart, and sanctified people. Right? We, we are to be different. We're not to worship in the way that others worship. We're not to talk in the way that others talk. We're not to entertain ourselves in the way that others entertain ourselves. We are God's people. We've been set apart as holy and sanctified. We treat our bodies differently. We, we eat differently. We sleep differently. We serve differently. We give differently. Everything about us should be different in this culture. Amen? We're not to look like everybody else. I, I said it very emphatically last week. We cannot take our cues on how we operate as a church from a culture that is depressed and that is dying and that is filled with anxiety. Right? They're already saying the next epidemic is going to be mental health. We, we've literally, for the sake of, of physical health, set aside spiritual and mental health. We've just... We're just pushing it back. We'll deal with it later. No, I'm telling you right now, we're dealing with it now. If you speak to anyone on the pastoral staff, we'll tell, we'll tell you, we're dealing with it right now. It's not 10 years down the road. It's not next year. It's now. People are hurting. And what's amazing is, is, is I, I've heard from people over the, the, even just the last few months, this is the only thing the only thing that's normal in my life right now is Sunday morning. Thank you. Right, I went to the Meadowood Mall yesterday. Man, I started feeling anxious. Because, you want to know why? The, the, reason, the reason is just because I hate the mall. That's not the only reason. <laughs> first of all, first of all, it was packed. Packed. I mean, I love, I love all the social distancing signs because it's not happening. <laughs> Maintain six feet the whole time, just, right? But you know why I started feeling anxious? Something about that many people covering their face and not being able to see their humanity. I started to feel like I was in a room of people without personality. And I found myself feeling angst. Why? Because we are created to be communal people at any cost. We're created to rub shoulders, to hold each other accountable. We're, we're created to love. We're created to embrace. We're created to be with one another. And this is what Habakkuk is crying out. God how long? I mean, we're a year into the coronavirus. How long, Lord? I mean, is this a typical, normal question? How freaking long is this going to take? The other question he asks is, how can you let this happen? I mean, aren't these your people, God? He then asks, do you even hear me? 
Are you listening to me? Right, and what's amazing about all this is that Habakkuk isn't questioning the armies. He's not questioning the violence around him so much as he's questioning the people falling into idolatry and falling away from God. David gives us an example of this crying out. David cried out in Psalm 13:1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I mean, have you felt this dark night of the soul? Have you felt these moments of wondering, how can God let this thing happen to me? How can God allow life to go the way that it is going? How long is this going to last? Why are there so many tears? I mean, it's one of the things you got to love about the book of Psalms. I mean, David literally is like, he's writing these Psalms and you can just see that he's totally bipolar, man. One moment, hey, how long are you to turn your face from me? The next, God, I feel your love. I know you. You're, you're like a shepherd who leads me along the path of still waters. The next moment, you hate me, don't you? Right? This relationship with God, it, it, it can be difficult. And, and then he tells us that, that the heart of the idol worshiping, the heart of the nation being turned results, he says, in iniquity, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, contention wickedness, and perversion. I mean, it's almost as if Habakkuk could be crying out to God right now for the United States of America, yeah? The state of God's people. The issue here in Habakkuk is that God's people look more like the world than the people of God. And here's one of our first takeaways. Habakkuk is not amused by this, but he is deeply concerned. There's no amusement. There's no joking. His deep empathy, he's empathetic. He's crying out just as, as Isaiah says, woe to those. Right? This is in curing of judgment who call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Man, I, I remember when I was being trained as a pastor in San Diego almost 20 years ago. And I remember, man, when people say, you know, this is a day and age where people are calling right wrong and wrong right. And I thought, man, yeah, this is, this is awful. How can it get any worse? And here we are 20 years later, and we're like, what? I can't even let my kids watch commercials anymore. Like, like, uh, this, the, 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 because everything about gender identity and choosing what you want to be, is, the, is all of that stuff is being infiltrated now in commercials. And so I've got a young boy who's, who's five years old who already loves Barbies. He loves them. And, and, and I see him sitting there, and we're watching this commercial, and it's all about transitioning. And I'm thinking to myself, I've got to turn this off. Because I, re- I don't want to reinforce gender confusion into my child. Right? Because... The, the whole mantra, and I know this is controversial, and I know somebody doesn't like what I'm about to say, but the whole idea that you can choose your gender is a satanic lie. God made you as he did in the beginning of the word of God, male and female. Now, let me be honest with you. I'm okay if my five-year-old boy likes Barbies, but I'm not okay if he wants to be one. I'm not okay with that because that is not who God made him. God made him unique. He made him to be a boy. Now, by God's grace, everything else about him is 100% testosterone. 
He is. He's aggressive. He kicks. He fights. And, and we've come to find out he likes Barbies because he likes women. <laughs> I can tell you story after story, but I don't want to embarrass myself. <laughs> Habakkuk is literally saying, he says it here, the, the last part in verse 4, the nations have become perverted. Our people have become perverted. And then he says, right before that, justice doesn't go forth. You know what he's saying? He's saying literally the law isn't working. Have you ever had to do anything with the courts? It's not fast. I mean, we literally are living in the same day and age as Habakkuk. It is perverted, and the social, just social system, it, it, it's not working. 2 Timothy 3.1 warns us, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. We're fixing that in a couple weeks. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Ouch! Oh, so first of all, we should not be surprised. <laughs> but secondly, we, we should be mourning as Habakkuk warns. I've been trying to counsel a gentleman in the last several months struggling. Struggling with identity, struggling within his marriage, struggling just about with everything. And one of the things that I believe as a pastor that I have to continually do, and I know Wayne agrees with this as well, and so does really our entire leadership and staff. We've got to be in relationship with broken people. Like your pastors need to rub shoulders with broken people a lot. And we do. And one of the benefits of that, first of all, I, I'm a broken person myself. As I've shared about stuff with my father and, and my parents and all those different things, uh, I know what it is to go through brokenness. But at times, when you're uh, in this, back here's our offices. I don't know if you know this, but this is where every, this is the Holy Holies right behind this wall. <laughs> and the golden tablets are back there, and, and it's just, it's beautiful back here. Just beautiful. Nothing bad ever happens. Angels sing when you walk in the doors. It's Pam Franklin, really, but no. <laughs> um, no, it, it, and, and sometimes, though, when we're back there, and and you're studying and you're reading, it can be lost on you of what, what culture is going through if you're not rubbing shoulders with sinners. And this individual just randomly who's struggling sent me a song, and it's a secular song, and I can't even read to you all of the song, but he sent me the song to let me know basically where he's at in life. And this is what the song says. All my life, I've drowned in adrenaline. Now my blood run, runs slow like a sedative. I wake up past noon, and they settled in. Lord, please help me up. I don't want to lay down. Help me get myself back up. I don't want to lay down. I feel the pain in my reflection. I want to get away, so I just step inside. I want to feel numb. Give me Novocaine for everyone else. I'm sick of staying in the house. That's a sad song. But you know what, if, if you've ever dealt with depression, as I have, the song makes sense. I, I don't, I don't want to lay down. 
I don't want to sleep in past noon, but I don't want to look at myself in the mirror. Right? This, is, this is what fi- false idol worship, false God looks like. And so here's, here's what I want us to take away from this morning, okay? I know that's all like super depressing. Like, could you leave me with some hope? I'm going to leave you with this, this hope. This is the ultimate. I remember the title of the message, Brutal Honesty. The only way to healing is to be brutally honest with God. To be completely brutally honest, just as Habakkuk is doing here. First of all, there's the desperate need to be honest with God. You need to be open. You, you, need, to be, you need to lament. I've actually had a counselor tell me, Jesse, sometimes you've got to go low so you can go high. Sometimes you've got to mourn and you've got to weep, and it's okay. I've had, I've had couples in my office say, this, this is sad and this is horrible, and, I, and, I've, and the, the only response is, that's the right response. Right? If, if your marriage is broken, the right response is to be sad, not to rejoice. Well, the Lord will make you happy. No, sometimes you've got to mourn that stuff. Sometimes you have to cry. Because if we don't cry, we're not going to actually grow. Right? It's easier for, for us to say, God, get me out of this. Anybody ever prayed that? How many of you? How many of you? I'm leaving the United States of America. I'm going to Mexico to help Travis with babies. That sounds great right now. That sounds so good right now. Like, I'm going to just go help with babies. Just get me out of here. God, take me out of the fire. It's easier to pray that, but you know what God desires us to pray? God, meet me in the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the fire. Daniel, in the lion's den. The presence of God is met in hardship. You've got to be honest so that you, not, you don't become fake. You know, there's nothing more pretentious, nothing worse for the church than fake Christians. Pretending like they've got it all together, coming to church with a big smile on their face, and everyone can see right through it and know that person is faking it. You know what? We come into this room as broken individuals, honest. We're not content with the way the world is, and we shouldn't be content with the way the world is because our hearts are longing for the real world that is to come, that is the new Jerusalem, that is heaven come down to earth. That is what we long for. And our pain and our agony remind us of that. But as you're being honest with the Lord... This is a big one. It's important that you don't become issue-driven, but gospel-driven. Right? Your issue isn't your issue. <laughs> it's the gospel in the issue. You know what's really amazing? Uh, they sang it this morning, and I have it in my notes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I mean, that, that, that's it, isn't it? I mean, if you're not happy with the way the world is, you've got to be honest with God so that God can give you an honest perspective of his infiniteness and your smallness. That's part of why we go through pain. Because it reminds us of our littleness. I mean, you remember the entire story from Saul to, to David to Josiah? One moment they're there, the next they're not. Why? Because it's not about them. They're, they're there, and then they're gone in the blink of an eye because it's not about them. We need to be reminded in our pain how small our pain really is. 
Right? Have you ever seen the Francis Chan thing where he takes out the big string? How many of you have ever seen that? Takes out a huge string. And three inches of it, he says, here's 80 years of your life. You're all worried about it. And then he lays out the rest of the 100-foot yarn or whatever it is, and this is eternity. And yet we're not even thinking about it. It's perspective, is it not? The grace of God. So we must, as Habakkuk, we must be honest with God and ask him the right questions. We should be distressed over our moral condition, and we should see that our suffering always precedes glory, and that even suffering itself is central to the gospel. In fact, Habakkuk, in chapter 2, verse 4, will say, the righteous shall live by faith. It is a verse that is quoted in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. The righteous will live by faith. Now, I'm going to close there and leave you with, you better show up next week because God's going to respond. And some of you are like, I want to hear what God has to say next. Well, you can read it. You can read it on your own but we're going to break it down next week. And I want to share this with you. This is, and then we'll partake in communion. This is incredible. How many of you know who Jordan Peterson is? Okay, a few of you do. Jordan Peterson is an intellectual of intellectuals. Uh, really a, a, a modern voice for conservative morals and standards. And he's, he's debated uh, liberals, and, and man, he's just, he's actually... By liberals, he's very highly hated. <laughs> they hate him. And he's talked a little bit about God uh, here and there. And I want to encourage you to, if you can look up in the interview uh, from, it's called Not the Bee. I'm not going to get into explaining to you what that is, but it's called Not the Bee. And he was being interviewed, and he was being asked about the person of Jesus Christ. And this is a man who has not proclaimed to follow Christ, not a Christian, and he's gone through some sickness, uh, still kind of going through it. And in the interview, these were his words. He says this about Jesus. It has become something with a, with a power that tra- transcends your ability to resist it. I probably believe that. And I, and I am amazed at my own belief, and I don't understand it. In some sense, these just highlights from it, from the interview. In some sense, I believe it's undeniable. I still don't know what to make of it, partly because it's this, this is... This is key because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe it. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. And as he's giving the interview, he's choked up in tears, and he essentially says, I think, I think I believe it. And what we need is for the church. You know when we think about Reformation? Reformation always starts in the church first, friends. Revival always starts in the church first. A lot of us say, man, Jess, you know, yeah, you're right. The nation needs this, so we got to start voting and we got to start doing these things. We got to pick it. We got to do whatever we got to do to change the nation. No, 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 no. That's not Habakkuk's concern. Habakkuk's concern is for the people of God to reform first. It's you and I that need a reformation. We look inward first. And once that reformation happens in our hearts, then we can begin to reform the world outside and see it changed. And I'm praying for that. And if not, we get to go home. Isn't that good news? We get to go home. 
And then we get to enter the eternal, eternal world with God himself and all of his other prophets. Would you stand with me? The worship team comes up. And as we think about that idea of the Reformation and God changing and molding and shaping us to be who he wants us to be. Remember one of the first things Josiah did. He found that scroll. I love it. He found it and he read it. And then they participated in communion. I mean, really, to be honest with you, those are the keys to Reformation. Find the word of God, read the word of God, celebrate his death, celebrate his resurrection. Submit fully to relationship with Christ. As Jesus told us, told his disciples at the Last Supper, to partake this as often as we can in remembrance of the ability of reformation that he's given us. So Lord, we thank you for your body, which was broken on our behalf. Lord, we know that we did not deserve your perfect life to be imputed to us, but yet you've seen fit to do it. We rejoice and thank you, Lord, that you and you alone have provided access to God the Father. We partake. And Lord, we remember your perfect, sinless blood shed on our behalf, Lord. The the thing that purchased us into the family of God. Thank you, Lord, for doing what we could not do so we could enjoy the benefits of being children of God, Lord. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your resurrection, Lord. We celebrate your life given in Jesus' name. Amen. May I partake? God bless you. Let's sing. Let's leave rejoicing the goodness of God. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may